Okay, we're now going to hand over to Steve for the main talk of the evening. Steve actually wrote the intro course, so he's um, done hundreds of these talks in the past. And he works in Dublin city centre, well, not city centre anymore. He works at home for HubSpot, who are a big and ever-growing tech company. So he's really got his finger on the pulse of modern 21st century Dublin, which I think puts him in a good place to engage with the big topics in everyone's on, on people's minds. So Steve, over to you. It gives us great pleasure to hear what you're going to say to us next. Thank you, Pat and Isaac, and thank you everyone for coming and please do add your questions. It's lovely to be here again. Um, so yeah, no question is too simple. No questions too feisty. Put them in and we'll look at it at the end. Is there hope in a time of fear and uncertainty? For those of you that have watched the film or read the Tolkien book, The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, you'll know that one of the central themes that is developed is the theme of hope. And it, right at the end of the film, this is brilliantly portrayed, um, where uh, we have Sam and Frodo. And Frodo is rapidly losing hope that the journey will finish, that they'll destroy the ring, uh, and that darkness and evil will be conquered. And so Sam, his good friend, starts reminiscing about the stories that they learned back as Hobbit, you know, when they were young Hobbits, and stories that they'd come to love and believe in, and stories that inspired them to hope. And this is how the conversation goes. And I quote, Sam says, those were the stories that stayed with you, that meant something, even if you're too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo, that I do understand. Folk in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't. They kept going because they were holding on to something. Frodo says, what are we holding on to, Sam? Sam replies that there is some good in this world and it's worth fighting for. That's the power of hope. And you know what? Even as I, even as I read it and I, and I watched the film many times, I get goose pimples. Because you and I and every human heart in this world wants that to be true. We want to know there's something to hold on to. We want to know that there's something worth fighting for. We don't want to give up. We want to know that the light is going to cancel out the darkness. And more than ever, for this present generation, which has been very isolated from much trauma in the West anyway, we are now having to face an issue where we could give in to hopelessness and we're desperate to find hope. Because many of the things we used to find hope in, well, they're not certain anymore, are they? Financial prosperity physical health, continual progress, societal order, a future that you can plan and control like your wedding day, a long life of happiness. You can't guarantee any of those right now. None of us can guarantee any of those right now. So can we find hope in this time of fear and uncertainty? And I wanna do two things. I did this last time. I wanna compare and contrast the secular view of hope that if you get rid of God, what kind of hope are you really left with? Is there hope? What can you hold on to? As Sam says to Frodo. And then the Christian view of hope. And as Katie has personally testified to, the resources that are available to the Christian that you have something to hold on, even if it's uncertainty, and even if there's fear, and even if your loved ones die. And like last time, I want to give an intellectual answer as I compare and contrast the views. I don't want to belittle or, 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 or condemn. I just want to compare and contrast and try and provoke questions. But I also want to give a personal answer because depending on where you're coming from and why you've joined, and thank you for joining, you may be going, I want to know the intellectual answer here, or I want to know the personal, and I want to try and answer both. 
So let's start with the intellectual answer. The secular view of hope is that humanity will progress. I'm here relying on a Christian thinker that some of you will know called Tim Keller and his book, Making Sense of God, and a recent talk he gave from the book. A great book, I suggest you get it. In it, he, he quotes Robert Nisbet, a very famous book from the 1980s called History of the Idea of Progress. And Nisbet, I don't believe is a believer or, or anything or not that I know of, but he compares all the ancient peoples, the Babylonians, the Chinese, the Hindus, the Greeks, everyone in fact. And he says, everyone in the ancient world thought time and history were cyclical. It wasn't going anywhere. Some civilizations and cultures actually thought, no, history is going declining. And the Greeks potentially held on to this idea that if, if thought could progress, society could progress. But on the whole, there wasn't an idea of progress in the ancient world until Christianity came along and the idea of the kingdom of God would come. And the idea that history is no longer cyclical and going nowhere or declining, but uh, history is actually going somewhere and has a future and, is, is, and society can progress along a positive line. So that was the view for most of the 1500 years, post 1600 years after Jesus, that Christianity had brought this idea of hope, of, of a, forward going, a forward momentum to history. Then what happened in 1950, and it, there was different earthquakes and natural disasters and, uh, and the Enlightenment and all the rest, belief in God began to decline. And Europe became more secular, rejected the idea of God, but they kept the idea of progress and the idea of hope that they got from the Bible. And philosophers started to talk about humanity progressing, more technology, more industry, more knowledge, more finance. We're going somewhere. We don't need God. We can do it without God. And of course, Darwin comes along and says, we're evolving. The stronger are getting stronger and the weak are getting siphoned off. So we are progressing as a humanity. And so the, the idea that you could find hope, you could progress without God became a very real idea to people. And then the 20th century hit. And there was a horrendous 30 to 50 years. Horrendous. 1914, World War War, 40 million people killed. 1918, the Spanish flu, this great pandemic that we're now relearning about. Estimates, 50 million people killed, 1918. 1930, the Great Depression, the GDP decline of 27%, unemployment of 25%. 1939, World War II, 75 million people killed. In that 30 to 50 year period, ideas of hope, societal progress, the world is going somewhere, fell on hard times. But were any of you around, maybe one or two, I doubt it though, in 1940 at the end of the Second World War, 1941? We don't know that time of catastrophe. We've never experienced it. And so the, the secular idea of progress and, uh, and hope has had a resurgence and a revival. 9-11 shook our world a bit. Yeah, we had a, a, a depression, a, you know, a crash in 2008, but it was 1% GDP decline, not 25% or 27%. We've never had anything like what they had at the start of the 20th century. But then recently, we've started to experience some real suffering. The pandemic, of course but also environmental crisis, global warming, the pollution of our oceans, David Attenborough and all that. We're suddenly going, wait a minute, we're ruining our world. We're not progressing it. There's rogue states, there's terrorists who want to kill and create havoc and we don't know how to stop them. Technology, we're progressing, but we're creating a monster 
the surveillance state, fake news, we're undermining democracy. Who can we trust anymore? That there's a sort of like, is our world really progressing or is it getting all out of control and are we destroying it? Uh, suicide and depression rates up, the, the need for counselors has never been greater. What about the arts? You always see in the arts, don't you, film, literature, poems, what's really going on in our society. What have been some of the recent big hits on the TV? House of Cards, Mad Men, Breaking Bad, if you're from an Irish context and you're not too old, love-hate. Those shows have no sense of hope and progress. They're actually characterized by anti-heroes, not heroes. No righteous, no light conquering darkness. Dark is, not conquers all. There's no sense of progress. You have nothing to, nothing to cheer for. Lies, deception, power, abuse, evil, darkness. What's going on? It's a symptom that our society is, lo society is losing hope and the arts are representing that. Why? What's, got, what's gotten into the secular idea of human progress? Well, two things. There's two big problems with the secular idea of progress. The problem of human nature and the problem of ultimate oblivion. You see, if you get rid of God and you say, look, human nature, you know, the society is just going to progress and progress and progress. What do you do with Auschwitz? What, what do you do with Auschwitz? You know, the secular idea of hope and progress said, as we increase in knowledge, as we increase in technology, as we increase in industry, we will use technology and knowledge and our industry for good. But we haven't always, have we? We assumed that as knowledge increased, our moral compass would stay on track. But we don't use knowledge, power and finance for other people's good so often. Here you have a leader called Hitler, who's very wealthy, who's aiming to progress society by killing off a weaker race in his eyes. And he's using the latest technology to slaughter them. Now, of course, we have to have an answer for this. There's a liberal answer. The liberal answer goes like this. People who commit great crimes in life were victims of unjust social structures, bad family upbringing, tough school environment, deprived backgrounds. You know, the Nazis did bad things because bad things were done to them. You can't say that, can you? You trivialize the suffering. You take away what it really is as evil, as evil. You can't say they were victims of unjust social structures and that justifies the six million Jews dying. No. Well, then you go to the conservative answer. No, 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 no. Those Nazis were just terrible people, awful people, evil people. Not like They were subhuman. <gasps> subhuman? What have you just done? You've just started to wipe out a race. Wasn't, isn't that what the Nazis were, were doing? You've become the oppressor. You, you now think you have a right to cut them off and to say they, we should just banish them. You're now the Nazi. You've denied the common humanity that can turn every one of us into an oppressor. First answer, liberal answer, Nazis couldn't help it, trivializes it, you can't say that. Second answer, the Nazis are subhuman. Oh, you're then committing the same crime they've committed. What's the right answer? Well, the Christian answer is that in every single one of us is the ability to do such horrendous things. The evil lies within. The Bible calls it sin. We're warped on the inside. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, if that's how you pronounce his name, uh, in his book, Gulag Archipelago, talks about life in, this, uh, in the Gulag, the, the, the communist Soviet forced labor camps. And he puts it like this very famous quote, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. 
So the secular idea of progress didn't take into account the problem of human nature, the problem of the human heart. We are not morally good species. And so as we progress, we don't use our progress always for good. So in the end, we can bring great harm. War, we kill each other. Our environment, we destroy it. Ourselves, we become addicts of different things. And there's division, isn't there, in our society? Isn't COVID-19 revealing all the cracks, racial? geographical, political, economic differences in our world, are we progressing? But there's another problem, and that's the problem of total oblivion. The secular view always says, well, humanity is always progressing, you know? We're moving forward, we're going somewhere, we don't need God, we've got somewhere to go, we have our own hope. We're all here by accident, there's no supernatural, there's no life after death. Wait, wait, wait a minute, where are we going? To total oblivion? The sun will collapse and the world will cease to exist. The death of the sun will mean the death of all civil... We are progressing towards total oblivion. That is the secular view of hope. I don't get much hope from eternal nothingness. I mean, why does it matter what I do now? Should I live good or bad? Does it, should I do evil or, 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 or be benevolent? I mean, does, does it matter? Yeah, okay, 70 years on earth, if, if, if I'm given them, I might be able to make some good in my life. But like eternal nothingness is what's going to happen. Our lives are an insignificant blip. Is that really a hopeful, you know, how do I hope? Um, COVID-19, what is it that we really fear? What causes so much uncertainty in us? Well, Katie, and God bless her, was so good. I mean, death of our loved ones. One person put it like this. What makes you rush around in panic? What fills you with fear? What, What are the worst case scenarios that play out in your head? What does it look like? And he said, ultimately, it's always death. Health and safety, despairs of aging, fear of losing loved ones. It's just an underlining fear of death. So Bertrand Russell, I quoted him last time, famous atheist uh, philosopher from the previous generation, said, we are all destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system and all man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. Oh, what great hope. Carl Jung, let's move from philosophy to psychology. Death is indeed a fearful piece of brutality. There's no sense pretending otherwise. It is brutal, not only as a physical event, but far more so uh, psychically. A human being is torn away from us, and what remains is the icy stillness of death. There, There no longer exists any hope of a relationship, for all bridges have been smashed at one blow. This is, the, this is the view you have to have if you've got rid of God and supernatural and life after death. Is My idea of progress, well, it ends up in nothing. So John Lennox, who has written a book, a 70-page book, I recommend you buy it if you're interested in this, Where is God in a Coronavirus World? He's a professor at Oxford. Removing God from the equation does not remove the pain and suffering. It leaves it untouched. But removing God does remove something else, namely any kind of ultimate hope. In other words, if, if this life is all there is, is when you die, you rot. There's no greater story. There's no meta-narrative. There's no afterlife. We're all here by chance. Okay. I can make the most of my life now, but hope, progress, it's ultimate oblivion for me, for my loved ones, for all civilization. No wonder society is running out of hope. No wonder the arts are making TV shows with anti-heroes where darkness conquers the light. That's the logical outworking of getting rid of God. So that's, they're the two challenges to the secular view of hope that we're going to progress. The problem of human nature, the problem of ultimate oblivion, But we need something to fight for, don't we? Like Sam says to Frodo. 
In another famous book from the Holocaust, Viktor Frankl, again, not a Christian believer, in his classic, uh, The Man's Search for Meaning, in his classic tribute to hope from the Holocaust, sold more than 12 million copies uh, since first published in Germany in 1946. He was one of the world's leading uh, psychiatrists of his day, and he spent three years of his life in four different concentration camps. And the book is a meditation of meaning and finding inner reasons of hope to survive the atrocities. It's a fantastic read. At one point in his book, he says this, the prisoner who had lost faith in the future his future was doomed woe to him who saw no sense in this life no aim no purpose therefore no point in carrying on he, he was soon lost the typical reply with which a, such a man rejected all encouraging arguments was i have nothing to expect from life anymore frankel who's a tried to act as a, a psychiatrist in the camps said this what sort of answer can one give to that in other words there is no hope now for that person and he explains that many in the Holocaust who did find hope had to turn to back to their belief in God or, or something else. So what's the Christian answer? How do we find hope? And how does Jesus's resurrection particularly, which is unique to Christianity, this idea of resurrection, give us something, a resource in a time of uncertainty and fear? I want to read from one of my favorite passages in the Bible. It's when Jesus encounters Mary Magdalene after he's been risen from the grave three days after his crucifixion. The story goes like this. Now Mary stood outside the tomb weeping. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus's body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there but she did not realize it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I've seen the Lord. And she told them that, she had, that, that he had said these things to her. I want to say three things very briefly about Christian hope from this passage and from the resurrection. Christian hope is concrete. It is beautiful. And it's guaranteed. Firstly, it's concrete. Here you have a physical man with a physical woman in a physical garden. This is written by John, a Jewish man. If you're a Jew, a physical man, a physical woman in a physical garden, you think straight away to when God created the heavens and the earth, the Garden of Eden, and a man and a woman he put in there. And it's as if God is back in the resurrection saying this world got off track and I'm back to recreate what was lost. A beautiful, physical, concrete world which you can enjoy and develop. And, and in a sense, when, Jesus, when Mary thinks Jesus is the gardener, she's right. God is back as a gardener, creating this world again. The old world is going to pass away and a new world, the new Eden, 
is coming. And so the Bible promises that heaven is not an immaterial spiritual paradise removed from this world. That's what we often think of it. At the end of history, the last book of the Bible says uh, that we do not ascend into heaven, but heaven's glorifying power and beauty and, 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 and love descend into the material world and get rid of all the evil, suffering, aging, disease, poverty, injustice, and pain. So we not only look forward to the resurrection of our souls, but the resurrection of our bodies. It's a physical, concrete world. So did you notice that Mary says to Jesus, and Jesus says to Mary, do not hold on to me. She's holding on to a physical Jesus. There's no sense of sexual innuendo here. It's just a woman who's captivated by the beauty of a physical resurrection and the person that she wants to follow. So heaven is the redemption and renewal of everything in this world, not destruction or exit from it. So Christian hope is concrete. We're looking forward to a new heavens and a new earth when all the brokenness of this world will be purified and the old garden will be back in a sense. Secondly, it is beautiful. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean, Katie's story is so helpful for us. What, what really matters in your life? Like really, what do you matter? I mean, it's loved ones. It's, it's, that's why we fear death, because we're separated from loved ones. Here Mary's back with the one she loves. All the joy and the wonder, this unimaginable beauty of, of knowing Jesus and the resurrected Jesus. And that's what we want. In our deepest desires, we say, I hope I can live. I, we kind of pretend we are. We're living in a world where our loved ones don't die. A world of beauty where we uh, c- c- can know our loved ones forever. So Jesus says to Mary, I'm ascending to my father and your father. Astonishing. My God and your God. In other words, Jesus is saying, what has happened to me and will happen when I ascend back to heaven can happen to you too. It's my father and your father. We're part of the same family now, Mary, if you believe in me. You can join me in an eternal community of love and joy. And so elsewhere in the New Testament, Jesus is described as the first fruits of a harvest. And we are the re- those that be- believers in Jesus are the rest of the harvest. And he shows us that it's a physical, concrete and beautiful world of love. Now, Howard Thurman was a mentor to Martin Luther King, an American African scholar at Boston University, and he gave a famous lecture uh, at Harvard in 1947 on the meaning of African-American spirituality. He engaged the criticism that the the African-American spirituals, you know, the gospel songs and all the rest, were too otherworldly, too many references to heaven and to crowns and to robes and to thrones. You know, we get those images in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. uh, And uh, when Jesus returns, this is what we're going to receive. And and in the lecture, he answers the objection when he says, no, the the African-American slaves, you know, the 19th century slave trade, they took those images very seriously and believed that they would one day be crowned in robes and glory. And obviously the liberal scholars at Harvard said, oh, they're, they're just symbolic. It's, you know, it's too, it's too otherworldly, you know? And, 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 and Thurman, he, he, says, he says, imagine it. Imagine going to someone who'd been a slave all their life and you say, listen, there's, there's no life after death. There's no ultimate judgment. There's no rewards. Uh, none of your desires that have, you, you haven't managed to, 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 you know, to be fulfilled are never going to be fulfilled. Um, the best we can do for is improving social policy in this world. So, you know, keep that in mind. Go out there. Keep your head high as a slave. You know, have courage and love. Don't despair. And Thurman says, what ridiculous ideas. 
The reason the slaves were so resilient and sang about Jesus and all the robes and all the crowns and all that is because they knew that the physical, it was a physical, concrete, beautiful world that they would inherit. And this world would be smothered up by it. And all their pain and suffering as slaves would one day be put into perspective. A world of beauty, a world of joy, a world of glory, a world of rewards was coming their way. That's why they had resilience. Christian hope is concrete. Christian hope is beautiful as we live in a, in a world with our loved ones forever. And finally, Christian hope is guaranteed. What do I mean by that? Well, remember the two challenges to the secular worldview of hope and progress, the problem of, of, uh, uh, of human nature? Well, that's been dealt with. That's what the cross of Christ is all about. Jesus saying, I'm dealing with the problem of the human heart, the sin and the evil, and I'm giving you a new start, a new heart. And the problem of total oblivion, that we go into eternal nothingness, well, he rises from the dead. He's beaten death. Death no longer has us hold on us. Just as a creditor's power is broken when someone pays our debt in full, so death's claim and power over us has been broken as Jesus died in our place, paying our penalty and rising again. We're showing that we too can live an immortal life of love and beauty, the new heavens and the new earth. But here's my point when I say guaranteed. It's not an idea. It's not a theory of make-believe. It's not wishful thinking. It's guaranteed. How? How is it guaranteed? My hope for the future is grounded in a historic event in the past. And history cannot change. So if Jesus rose from the dead in history, and that is the guarantor of my future hope, then because history cannot change, my future is guaranteed. You see, we can put our hope in all kinds of things, a relationship, sex, finance, academia, work, family, popularity, a comfortable life, the secular idea of human progress, civilization, but none of that is certain. I don't know if those things are going to happen. Something might change. Another virus. You might change. We might. But the Christian hope says, no, our hope is not based on something in the present. It's based on something in the past that is never going to change. No matter what the present holds, the future is certain. And so our hope as Christians can become unbreakable. Now, you might say, and you probably will, and I hope you ask your questions. Well, how do I know if Jesus rose from the dead? Okay, nice, nice theory. Joining the dots between a, a, an immovable fact of history means an immovable fact in the future. I like your thinking, Steve, but how do I know if Jesus rose from the dead? Good question. We've got a question time for that. I'm not going to, but here's one answer. Mary, if you were making up a story just because you wanted to believe something that, about someone who died and you were very sad about it, that's, that's, the, that's the kind of, you have to have some kind of alternative answer to the resurrection. The disciples were crestfallen and despairing and they needed something to hope and so they made up a story. And You never put Mary, certainly not a shady woman like Mary Magdalene, we know she was a bit of a shady past, as the person who first hears from Jesus after the resurrection. As scandalous as it is for our modern ears, women didn't have a, a place in a court of law. Their, their voice wouldn't have counted. Their, their, their witness wouldn't have counted. In fact, it would have undermined the story. You'd only do that if it was true. And that's just one of many little incidental points to say, this isn't a made up myth. This has the ring of, of truth. And I guess for the question time, if you don't think Jesus rose from the dead, what is your explanation 
for the birth of the church, for the four accounts we have in the Gospels, for, for disciples who, who fears, fearlessly made known uh, the good news of Jesus in the face of death, um, you know, for the worldview change in so many of the Jewish and the Greek people at the time to start believing in, in resurrection. Yeah, how do you account for those things? What's your alternative? The fact that no body was ever produced, the Romans and the Jews couldn't stand, you know, the fact that this idea that Jesus was risen, but they never produced a body to disprove it. How do you account for that if you don't believe you rose? That's the key question. So Christian hope is not wishful thinking. It's guaranteed. Our hope for the future is based on an immovable fact in history. And we too can live in a concrete world of unimaginable beauty and joy with our loved ones that also know Jesus. That is what gave resilience and love and hope to those African-American slaves and to many more people. Can we find hope in a fear of, of, of uns- in a time of fear and uncertainty? If you get rid of God, I really want, how, how do you find it? I don't know. I'm not trying to belittle. I'm just, I don't know. It's total oblivion is the answer is what happens. But if Jesus rose from the dead, this world is not the end. I have resources at my disposal that I can say, I want society to progress as much as it can now. I want to give myself to the flourishing of this world now, regardless of the consequences to me, because I have a hope for the future. Let me finish with this. Mary had lost hope, hadn't she? She was crying. The angels say, why are you crying? Jesus says, why are you crying? She's desperate. She's like Katie in the story, crying at the grieving at the death of a loved one. She didn't know what the future held. Do you know, so much of what we have hoped for as a society has been taken away. We're like Mary in the garden. They've taken him away. They've taken the things I hoped for away. And I don't know where my future lies now. What changes Mary? What brings her back? Did you notice? Jesus said, Mary. He called her name. You know, for everyone on this call who's a Christian, for, for Katie, for the panel, for myself, for the, for the slaves back in the 19th century, the moment Jesus says your name, Steve, Mary, it, it changes everything. You can face things when you know that the creator of the universe, the one that has died in your place, has risen from the dead and says your name. And maybe COVID-19, if I can end on this personal note, Maybe COVID-19 has unblocked your ears and you can hear him calling your name. Give in to him and find a hope, a future, a world of unimaginable joy and beauty and love. Find a strength, find a peace, but you have to give in to him. Maybe COVID-19 has unblocked your ears, opened up your heart that you might receive him. Thanks for listening. No question is too feisty. No question is too simple. 